Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Skate Podcast. Talking Bruins hockey with WEI Bruins writers Scott McLaughlin, Bridget Prue, and Brian DeFelice. Lace them up for some beast talk. It's Odyssey's The Skate Pod on WEI. Welcome into episode 230 of the Skate Podcast. I'm Brian DeFelice, joined by Bridget Prue and Scott McLaughlin. Bridget and Scott, it's been, what, 30 days since the Bruins last played? Or between between games, it's been quite a while. So I know, Scott, you were at Warrior Arena uh, this week. And and what's what's the latest going on with the Bruins? Well, they have new lines. Um, Bridget, do you want to start with that? or? Yeah, yeah, I will start. So. Um... My opening shift has a lot to do with the new line combinations. Um, Yeah, Scott, you tweeted them out from practice yesterday. Um, Really, there's quite a bit of movement, um, more than I was expecting. Like, I was kind of expecting them just to purely swap Patra for Coil, but they did more than that. So they moved DeBrusque to the left side um, on the same line with Zaka and Pasternak. Um, And then Marshawn Patra Geeky which I want to get into that line a little bit more. And then Van Riemsdyk, Coel, Frederick, and then the normal fourth line of Lucci, Beecher, Lauco. Um, and so my, I, I have no issue with the, the first line combination, DeBrusque and Pasternak and Zaka. I think they'd be fine together. Um, I was intrigued by the fact that they dropped Van Riemsdyk to the, as well as Coyle off of their original lines to align with Frederick. Um, as well as decided Geeky would be elevated to the second line with Marshawn as well, which is something that we haven't really seen. Um, so that would be something where chemistry would need to get built. And I want to hear Scott's opinion on what that looked like in practice. I know it's probably a small sample size that you saw, um, but maybe some thoughts on why Geeky makes sense on the right wing um, on a line with Marshawn and, and Patra. Um, so I'm not entirely convinced that this is the best shakeup of the players, um, to be honest, I would do, I, and I've been saying it, want to see Marshawn with Patra, but I was happier with DeBrusque on that line as well. So, um, what are you guys thoughts on that? Bridget with the, the longest opening shift of all time. <laughs> no. oh, um, you, you definitely hold the record. Don't even, but, but we weren't calling them opening shifts then. So it doesn't even count. Um, yeah, no, I, I think, you can see the reasoning in, in all these lines. Um, you know, Potter and Geeky have worked pretty well together in the third line, I think. So I understand keeping them together and then upgrading the other wing to Marshand. Um, you know, we talked about it. Like, it kind of serves two purposes here. One is that Marshand coiled the brusque line was being used in sort of like a shutdown role and they weren't, they were doing a very good job defending and not giving up chances. They weren't getting a ton of chances at the other end. So Jim Montgomery kind of even alluded to this. Uh, 
after practice when he was asked about the lines and mentioned that Vin Reams like Coyle Frederick could be used as sort of a matchup line. And Coyle and Frederick played that role together basically all of last season. So we know that he can do it. Vin Reams likes, you know, he's not going to be nominated for a Selkie or anything, but he's been a responsible two-way player his whole career. Like he's not a liability defensively. Um, meanwhile, Marshan and DeBrusque now both get freed up and put into a little bit more offensive situations. Potra's playmaking ability gets, you know, a clear upgrade with Marshand on his wing. So I see the reasoning behind all these lines. I Part of me still feels like there's kind of one more shift to go, which would be sort of, I'm with you. Like I thought the more natural change would have been just flipping Potter and coil. But I wonder if part of that is you don't want coil to feel like it's a clear demotion just yet. You know, so like you still give him Van Reems that again, it's like, Hey, here's, you know, a career long top six forward and scorer. So that line can still be expected to produce offensively. Um, But it does feel like eventually, you know, a third line of Frederick Coyle geeky move in Reamsdike back up to the Zaka Pasenark line. And then Yomasha and Patrick DeBrusque, like that still makes sense to me to end up there at some point, but I do kind of get, um, you know, making this the first step. Those are a couple of long back-to-back shifts there. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So did you want my, my, my two cents on that? Or did you want to want me to go to mine? Yeah, I mean, I think, Scott, to your point, if uh, if we're massaging feelings here, it's not the right strategy. I mean, Charlie Coyle's 30 or 31 years old, so maybe even 32. Um, I hope that's not the case and really shouldn't be. So, I mean, other than that, I, I kind of echo what you guys said on that. I think it's it was kind of inevitable, I think, seeing Pacha move into those uh, those top two center roles. And, and yeah, I think, yeah, naturally switching him and, and Coyle was probably the easiest. Maybe Montgomery's just trying to, you know, again, tinker with his toys and see what he has and, and, and why not, right? It's, it's the first month of the season. And we talked about how the, the California trip might not be the toughest competition. But, I mean, Anaheim beat Carolina the other night. And, you know, the Kings are pretty good. And everybody's, you know, trying to play their best hockey in October. So you don't want to take any trip for granted. So I'm sure he's just trying to see what he has. And maybe it's the kind of thing that they tried with Taylor Hall, like moving that kind of caliber guy to the third line, um, Van Riemsdyk being, you know, the replacement there. And the other thing that maybe I'm not a huge fan of is I know DeBrusque can play both sides and he's versatile like that, but he's been playing mostly on the right side the last few seasons. And I feel like that's probably his more comfortable side. So moving him to the left, to keep Pasternak on the right for that that top new version of the top line um, is, you know, that could be a little bit of an adjustment for him at first um, because he's moving back over to the left where he'd been playing a lot at the right. Yeah, it's interesting because for, because for years, it seemed like DeBrusque wasn't really comfortable playing on the right. He, he would get flipped over every now and then and it wouldn't really go all that well and he, he would end up back on the left. And now basically since the second half of the 21-22 season, when he first got moved up with Bergeron and Marchand, he's been almost exclusively a right winger. So you're talking, you know, 
a full season, like almost a season and a half at this point. So it has been a while since, you know, I'm sure he's had shifts here and there on the left side. Um, but it has been a while since he's played there regularly. I, my feeling is it's kind of like riding a bike. I, if you've been a left wing your whole life, I don't think you forget how to play left wing, but it could, there could be a little bit of an adjustment. Um, and as for the, the sort of like massaging coils feelings, you know, I just wonder if that's part of it. I also think there's like, there's hockey reasons to line up this way where, you know, if you want to get more rush chances from a Zaka Pasenak line, DeBrusque is going to help you do that more than Van Riemsdyk, who, you know, was a really good skater in his prime, but has certainly lost a little bit of foot speed now that he's in his mid thirties. Um, you know, putting Gigi with Marcia and Patra gives that line some size, uh, you know, and kind of another four checking presence, which DeBrusque is, is a good four checker too. But that does become a smaller line if it's Marsh and Padre DeBrusque. And then the again, the scoring threat in the third line that you, you just mentioned, Bridget. Like last year they loved having Taylor Hall there as someone who can help create offense. And Van Riemsdyk's obviously a very different kind of player. He's not gonna be creating offense with speed, you know, pushing D back, being a playmaker, but he can help create offense by being a presence around the net, which we've Certainly already seen on the power play, but he can do five on five as well. So, Scott, did you have a, an opening take yourself? Yeah, so just a, another thing that, you know, of note from Monday's practice, Danton Heinen's still here. He was still out there for practice, still does not have a contract. So uh, I know, you know, people are kind of wondering about that situation, why – he hasn't been signed yet while he's still hanging around. Um, you know, Jim Montgomery, I think it was late last week when he was asked about Heinen, basically said, like, we've asked him to be patient, and he has been. I think clearly they're they're waiting for something, and it could be this nine-game Patra extended tryout. Like, I, it's possible they're trying to wait that out before they – you know, that way you know – okay, what does the roster look like with Potter? What does it look like without? You kind of wait to make a final decision um, because if, you know, like you could look at it as if you end up sending Potter back, then Patrick Brown, who's also still with the team, probably doesn't get sent down and you just sign Hein and add him. Um, if Potter does stick around, then I think Heinen still signs. Like I think the reason he's still around is because I think they have, you know, sort of a handshake deal that he's going to be signed either way. But then you have to make, you know, a corresponding move, whether it's sending Brown down, whether it's some sort of trade. So um, I, I think it's just for like the clarity of what exactly is the roster going to look like after nine games. But, you know, it is, it is obviously a little bit weird because it's like he could get hurt in practice at any moment. And now all of a sudden he's, you know, he's kind of screwed. You you would hope maybe like the Bruins still try to find a way to take care of him if that did happen. But, um, you know, for him, I'm sure he's waiting around because there probably isn't anything better out there. He likes the situation. You know, he probably knows he has a spot. So 
it makes sense for him, for him from his perspective to hang around too. Um, where it would get interesting is if another team did come calling and offer him a real contract that would sort of force the Bruins hand to, you know, basically either, either sign him or don't. Sorry, turn my mic off. Um, I think that I'm glad you kind of mentioned the timeline, right? Cause we thought the timeline was to start the season. And it turns out that the timeline um, has extended beyond that. And then I think a lot of people were wondering, okay, then when, like, is this, is this going to happen? And like, when's, why not, why hasn't it happened yet? Um, And that though I do agree, that's probably what they are waiting for. I'm not a hundred percent sure why it's necessary because I think it's easy enough to just send Brown down and to insert Heinen right now. Um, And yeah, I mean, you, there's no reason why you couldn't do that. So uh, I think that that's probably what's going to happen inevitably anyway. I I mean, at least in my opinion, Heinen is the better option there than than Brown. Um, I do think there's – I so I don't know if you guys had the chance to watch any of the latest Behind the Bee. There's two episodes from this season, um, and they showed some of the conversation that was going on with Don Sweeney and the rest of the staff on their decision-making process and keeping Patra and, you know, waving other players and to keep Patra around. And it did sound like they very seriously um, were considering the nine games being that's it. Um, but I feel like as Patra continues to do what he's been doing, uh, that chance gets slimmer and slimmer by the day that he's going to be sent down. So at some point in the next few games, even if it's before the nine games, you're I, I, the understanding is that he's going to stick around. I feel like maybe Heine could get signed quicker in that situation, but truthfully, the logic behind it um, is a little bit lost on me. I mean, who would you guys say has been the most impactful center for them through two games? Would you say it's been Patra? Yes, certainly at five on five. You know, if you wanted to like add in Coyle's penalty killing or whatever, but five on five, I'd say it's pretty clearly Patra. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that he he should be sticking around. I mean, as for Heinen, I just think you can never have too much depth as long as you can fit it under the cap. And I think, you know, he's not a centerman, right? So that's where, you know, Patrick Brown, it's like, you know, you have that, that 13th type forward who's a center. Um, but yeah, I mean, I like Hein and I, I like what he brings to the table as a, as a low risk depth forward that you're going to need throughout the course of a season. If it's not him, it's, you know, somebody from Providence, you got to call up and I, you know, obviously he's an NHL player. So it's surprising to me that he, he's not, doesn't really have teams calling him, um, you know, for a middle six role and because, you know, teams are in different phases of their, of their development as an organization. Um, but if it comes down to the players, preference and then there you go um so yeah i mean i think clearly he's he's sticking around because there's a yeah a handshake agreement in place and i think he'll be part of this team going forward uh in in a depth depth capacity so uh for me and i'll throw it to you guys quickly i mean the one thing that comes to my mind um and we were just talking about patra but my, my my question is just say he ends up becoming one of your top two centers for the rest of this season. And he scores between, I don't know, call it 35, 50 points as a 19 year old. 
How does that change the Bruins' approach going forward as it pertains to addressing um, high-end sentiment outside the organization via trade or free agency? Does do the Bruins view Zaka and 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 Patra as yeah, like they're our number one and number two centers, and um, you know Charlie Coyle is is our three center until he no longer is. Like I just wonder if Patra has a season that we all think he might kind of have. And I don't think 35 points is, I mean, that's a hell of a season for a 19 year old, but I, I think it just seems like it's within reach for him uh, on a low end. So call it 40 points. To, how, how does that change the Bruins perspective? Like you always want to improve your team, but obviously Zaka is locked up for a little bit here and he's only you know, 24, 25 years old. Patra's 19. I mean, is it one I of those situations where 26. <clears throat> I think Pavel Zaka is 26. If I'm remembering mm-hmm. correctly. Yeah, he might he might be and and um but but in any event, you know, s- same range and um not in his peak in, in his prime yet. But do the Bru- would the Bruins view Zaka and Patra as like good one and two centers down the line, but neither one's elite, like then they still want to try to get an elite player, like what does Patra turn into? So obviously you can't predict the future, you know, years ahead, but that's why I'm saying like say this year comes and goes and Patra's like a 40 point. 50 point player and you have Zaka there and like, just how does that change their, their mindset? Well, so that's a great transition into our mailbag because that is pretty much exactly one of the questions that we got. So um, let's just start with that one. Uh, So I'll read it off for you. Uh, We got this one on Twitter uh, and the username was at Charlie boy on Twitter. And it says if Potter and Zaka prove this season that they can be legit top six centers, how does that change 2024 free agency? Imagining they re-signed DeBrusque, uh, Swayman, and have Lorai in their top four defensemen, uh, they'd have good money to upgrade either defense or winger. So um, I think, Brian, that's pretty much what you were asking, and we can give our thoughts on that. Yeah, it it if Zaka and Patra prove to be legitimate one-two centers, it's huge. Like it solves so many issues for the Bruins and really allows them to build out a team elsewhere. Like, you know, all last season, we talked about this tremendous step they had, especially, especially up front, especially on the wing where you have like a Taylor Hall in the third line. Well, you can start getting back towards that kind of depth. If you don't have to go spend big money on a center uh, next summer or trade assets for a number one center this season or Whenever, like, it really opens up your options because, you know, Patra's signed up for under a million for, you know, if he does stick around this year and start his entry-level contract two more years after this, Zaka's, you know, what, four and a half or three more years after this. So that is, like, that would be really cheap down the middle and allow you to really allocate some resources elsewhere. And I think it would probably be on the wing. Like if you look ahead a little bit to uh, the free agent class this summer, and this will, you know, it's always going to change because guys will, some of these guys will sign extensions during the season, but at the center position, it's, it's kind of thin. Like there's still Elias Lindholm there in Calgary. Obviously Mark Shifley has now already signed. Um, you know, and there's even been rumors that Lindholm might be working towards an extension with the Flames, so not even a guarantee he'll be there. Uh, the the 
big, big name, if he ended up being available, would be Elias Pettersson out in Vancouver. Um, but he, so he's a restricted free agent. Canucks do still have some team control uh, and presumably would end up getting a long-term deal done with him. But until that's done, you know, obviously you can't rule it out. And then after that, it's like, if you're talking about centers, I mean, Steven Stamkos might be there. There's been some rumblings that like, he's not really happy with how, with the fact that the lightning have basically ignored his contract and told him like, we'll talk about it after the season. Um, Wouldn't that be insane? Wouldn't that be crazy to have Steven Stamkos in this lineup? Yeah, I I do think he's probably better suited on the wing at this point in his career. But, you know, for a short term solution, if if you're looking to make a big splash, um, there's just there's going to be a lot more wings, though, like possibly William Nylander, who's obviously going to get big money. But then even after that, guys like Sam Reinhardt, Jake Gensel, Jordan Eberle, Tyler Bertuzzi will be back on the market. Jason Zucker, Tavo Taravainen. Adam Enrique, who's, you know, still a good player, even though he's in his mid-30s. If you were looking more for upside, there's like an Anthony Mantha. There's, there's just more options at the wing if you're, you know, if you can go play in that pool in free agency and not be so bound to, well, we have to find a center, you know, one way or another, whether it's big money free agency or giving up a lot of collateral in a trade. Like, if you can just sort of, be in the market for wings instead that's it would be huge obviously we have a ways to go right like we're we're two games into zaka and patra trying to <laughs> prove themselves a center so um ways to go but yes it would it would solve a lot yeah and i would say that it's not just you know 2024 free agency like talking about the offseason if you're in a position to be buyers at the trade deadline some of these moves could be made in season um, and pretty much all of those wingers that you listed, Scott, are players that perk everyone's ears up because those are those are really good players. They're not going to come cheap, most of them, like Tara Vinen, no way. Um, he's coming cheap, Nylander either. But uh, those are all such big-name players that have been with their teams for so long. Um, people probably haven't even thought of them as options to add to their teams, but now all of a sudden it becomes a possibility. So, um there's going to be a lot of people in the market for those guys as well. It's going to be, it's not going to be like, Oh, we're the only person targeting these people. They're going to have offers and that's going to drive up the prices as well. So um, the funny thing is when I read this question, the very first thought I had was Tyler Bertuzzi coming back. Um, And I think a lot of people wanted him to sign here to start the season, but because he only signed that one year deal with Toronto, he's going to be available again. Um, And you could get him at the deadline again as a rental or add him in free agency, because it sounded like he had interest in signing with Boston, but there was some sort of miscommunication or mishandled contract situation. Maybe that was on him. Maybe that was on his agent. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know exactly what the situation was, but he liked playing here. So he could be someone that they haven't forgotten about and they could go after again. Um, Like you mentioned, there's a lot of options. So adding someone like him back, isn't the only way to go and we know what he brings we know he brings uh his net front skills on the power play we know what he brings um five on five as well a little bit of that pest attitude the same way a little kind of like marsh on but then you have those other options like tara vinen that's more of a skilled winger and then 
like you like you just mentioned, a lot of those guys play very different styles. So those could all be options for them, either in free agency or maybe even before that. Yeah, we just quickly note on Bertuzzi, it almost certainly wouldn't be as a rental just because I don't expect Toronto to be selling, but that is true. Know, and maybe, neither is Carolina. Hey, so if if Toronto we have a question about Toronto later that we'll get to, but if they don't start playing defense, maybe uh, you know, maybe they, they will be out of it. But so yeah, look, I think this is the fact that this question is even being asked and we have the opportunity to, to answer it is something that I don't want to take for granted because about a m- month and a half ago, Matt Potter was not on anybody's radar. The Bruins having a number a top two center of the future outside of Zaka potentially was not on anybody's radar. And I want to express why that's so important because for 15 years and 20 years for Bergeron, right? Maybe even 17 years, Bergeron and Krejci were together. Um, the Boston Bruins had one of the best one-two combinations up the middle in the entire National Hockey League for almost two, two full decades. And they're both Boston Bruins Hall of Famers. Um, they're both all centennial players for the Bruins, as Scott's well aware of. But neither one of those players ever eclipsed 80 points in a season their entire career. Neither one of them was ever a point-per-game player in the regular season their entire career. The reason I say this is not to to, to bash what they've done. I, I mean, I'm their biggest fans. What I'm saying is the Bruins are in need of a number one and a number two center on their team. They're not in need of the number one center in the league, right? Like Patrice Bergeron was on the Bruins and he was, a, you know, he was a, certainly the, you know, one of the best two way forwards of his generation. And, and at all times, one of the t- top two way centers in the game, but he always played in a league with Sam Coast, Crosby, uh, McDavid, Matthews. Like, like he always had guys around him at his position that offensively were, were elite where he was just a notch, you know, below them offensively, but his defensive game was insane. So all I'm trying to say is like, we don't need Patra and Zaka to be 80 plus point scorers. If they want to be number one, number two centers of the Bruins, they need to be responsible two way forwards that can put up, you know, 50 to 70 points because I mean, that's what Bergeron and Krejci did offensively. They averaged probably around 70 points, 65 points a year. And, and, and it was good enough to make the Bruins the best at that position for almost 20 years in the league. So if Patra and, 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 and Zaka, not that they have to be Bergeron and Krejci, but if they can be two-way responsible players that are capable of scoring around 60 points a year, 60 to 70, then that's, all, that's the formula that the Bruins had for 20 years where you can build around those, play, uh, those pieces. Now, one could argue the Bruins didn't win as much as they should have, so maybe there's something to be said about having a true like top player in the world, but guess what? Only one or two teams in the league can have that Connor McDavid, Connor Bedard type player. So um, I think that this is the big if, and then, Scott, you mentioned it's only been two games, but if Patra and if Zaka, if you can see the writing on the wall that those two players can be you know, 55 to 75 point players in this league, at 19 years old and 26 years old, as Bridget mentioned earlier, then I think, yeah, I don't think you need to go out and get an Elias Lindholm because how much better is Elias Lindholm right now than Matt Patra in two, three years? So 
it's a huge development for them. And, you know, you always want to improve your team. And if there's, a, if there's a deal to be made out there, you know, always you want to explore it. But I think, yeah, I think the Bruins potentially could just be in a position where they're, they may have found their, their, their replacements for Bergeron and Krejci a year after them retiring. Yeah and, yeah. and let's stick with the, Oh, Scott, did you have something to say about that? Uh, just the last thing I was going to touch on was the D part of that. So yeah, I think, you know, uh, because at Shirley boy, which is just a great Twitter handle, no idea what it means, but um, mentioned Laura in the top four. And yeah, I think like we all expect that, you know, to also be a thing by next season, you know, Laura, probably going to be in the NHL at some point this year. And certainly if he moves his way into a top four role for next year, then however you decide to line it up, like you're all set there with McAvoy, Lindholm, Carlo, Lorai. If Laura's development goes the way we expect this year, that's a great top four. And then you can fill in your third pairing really however you want, because Forbert's contract is up at the end of the season. Grizzlicks is up at the end of the season. Chad and Kirk only signed a one-year deal. So whether it, whether it's bringing any of those guys back or going in a new direction, you would also have flexibility on defense too. And, um, you know, I think like they could spend a little bigger if they, you know, wanted to try to really strengthen their defense. Um, or you can fill in your third pairing really just however you see fit. Like, you know, if you want an offensive guy in there somewhere, you can go find one. If, you want some toughness, like you can get that. So um, they should have some op- some flexibility in defense as well. Uh, with a, again, without the need to like spend huge, which is a real luxury for Don Sweeney to have. Which you know to to have the money to spend to fill in your roster without having to like overcommit or desperately stretch yourself for one of the real top players on the market. Yeah, basically, if you don't have to spend for a top six forward or a top four defenseman, then you're putting yourself in a good position to not have to spend a lot of money. And I think those roles, if you consider Jake DeBrusque, if we just put him in the category of resigning, obviously things are different. You might need a top six forward if he doesn't. But if he does, then you have all those spots locked up um, and the money you have to spend is much less. So um I want to keep with, we had a few questions about Patra, so I just want to hit those first. Um, so the next mailbag question is, let's see, which Patra question do we want? Um, so this one is more of like a logistic one. I think we can answer this pretty quickly. Uh, question from Jim that left this comment on YouTube. He said, are there any options for Patra if the Bruins keep him past the 10 game limit, but then he hits a rookie wall in February and March. So um, I can answer this, Scott. I know you can answer this as well. Yeah. First off, shout out to Jim because he's one of my friends. So um, Jim you know, left and, us like seven questions. Yeah, I know. Jim, I hope we're getting to all of them, but we'll definitely get to this one. Yeah. So appreciate Jim filling up our mailbag. Um, but yeah, so for Patra, uh, yeah, they can send him back to juniors after the 10 games, too. The The reason that nine-game timetable is important is because once he plays his 10th game, hit the first year of his entry-level contract starts, and that burns that year off his entry-level deal 
no matter what happens after that. So if, you know, you keep him for a 10th game and then he sucks the next five and you send him down after 14 games, well, you, the first year of his ELC is still gone. So you would still only have two years of control after. So that's, that's why that nine game matters. Um, but they, they could send him back to juniors after later in the season at some point, and you could call him back up. So like they could send him down after 20 games and he plays two months down there and he's just tearing it up and they have, you know, they decide, Hey, you know what? We need him back. Like, you know, we could really use him in our lineup. They could then bring him back up some point later in the season. So it's similar to how you can call a player up and down from Providence, except in Potra's case, it's not Providence. It's going to be the Guelph storm in the OHL. And there's a real disincentive to do that because you don't want to burn that, that first contract year. Um, so I, I don't think they're going to need to have this discussion because I think he's going to stay. I have a really hard time imagining him going back down at this point. And I think everybody here agrees with that. It's a, it's a good question by Jim though, just for, for people who were, who are wondering. And also while we're giving shout outs, I also want to thank my mom for sending us the question about, uh, Patra and the Bruins. Yeah. <laughs> Did your girlfriend uh, send one too? It, mm-hmm. it, is your mom at Charlie Boy? <laughs> yeah, I told her to change that that tag. <laughs> I was like, mom, people are gonna know what is that? She's like, don't worry about it. It's my alias. <laughs> yeah, it's just a, it's just an alias. So our other question about Patra, and this one, this one I had been thinking about like ever since I read this question, I kind of was thinking about it. We have um an email that Scott received from Scott who listens to our podcast out in Seattle. So thank you, Scott. He said, do you think Monty will give Patra a shot on the first line with Pasternak and JVR or possibly a Marshawn Patra pasta line? Um, And I've been thinking about it and, and, you know, Scott, our, our viewer, Scott, not this Scott, uh, likes the idea because of the comparison between Patra and Krejci uh, and how, just how well Pasternak has worked with Krejci over the years. Maybe try and see if the chemistry exists between Patra and Pasta, which is just fun to say also. Um, so I've been thinking about it a lot and I really do think give this a, a period or two of trial um, if we're already throwing the lines in the blender, like it looked like at practice, I want to see what it looks like. Yeah, I, I certainly think you could see it at some point, especially if Potra sticks around past nine games. Um, I don't think there's any rush because I think they like Zaka and Postonarch's chemistry together going back to last season. I think even though Montgomery's already changing that line, I think that's been a pretty good line so far. Um, so yeah, it could happen at some point. Obviously we did see Patra with Pasternak a little bit in the preseason or did he, I'm trying to think, did he get a game? I know he got some practices there. I don't remember if he actually played a game there, but I think Scott, you might remember, um, but I think they also got some time together in the Nashville game because of all the special teams. I think there may have been a few five on five shifts after. Yeah. Actually, I think kills. Right. And I think it may have been geeky with them. I think. Or Lucic? No, Geeky. I think it was Geeky and Pasternak. 
I don't remember, but they did get a couple yeah. five on five shifts together. I do not foresee a Lucci Patra pasta line happening at any point, but <laughs> certainly, certainly not with any consistency. But but he was trying to Montgomery was just trying to get some people um, on the ice that were on the bench during the penalty kills. Yeah, uh, I, I think you're right. I think that was the combo because I think those are the three guys who weren't used at all on special teams. Um, so he threw them out there for for a shift right after. But yeah, you, uh, certainly you can see how Patra's playmaking combines with Pasternak to form a good tandem. Um, you know, yeah, there's, there can be a lot of, you know, tryouts and, and moving things around because this whole Ford group is not as settled as last year. There's not, you know, a Bergeron and Marchand who always play together or Krejci and Pasenak who have chemistry. Like these are all relatively new combinations and different wings with different centers. So, yeah, if Zach and Pasternak are, you know, they're a little bit slow for a while and not really producing, sure, you could see that. Um, I also think, you know, it's it'll, it's interesting because I think right now when you look at, like, the lines that they broke up Monday in practice, DeBrusque, Zach, Pasternak kind of feels like the clear, you know, quote-unquote number one line. But I think if you end up in that situation where it's like, now you're going to put Patra with Pasenak and maybe it's Martian and Zaka. It's, it's fine to like not have a clear number one. Like I don't, even if Patra ends up in that situation, I don't know that he's going to suddenly be playing 20 minutes a night, like a number one center. You can still kind of manage his shifts and keep it, you know, five on five second power play and, you know, sort of manage him a little bit that way. And like, not dump too heavy of a workload on him. I do think it's funny and I keep thinking of this, but I kind of feel like he's already reverted back on this, but Montgomery said he wanted to make fewer line changes this season, like tamper with the lines less this season because he wanted to create chemistry because there wasn't a set, you know, situation. He was going to try to build it by keeping people together. But first of all, I don't, I don't think he's going to end up doing that. And second of all, I don't think it's the right thing to do um, when you especially are in this window of trying Patra wherever you can possibly try him to see what, like whether or not he's somebody that you want to keep um, and where he might fit best. I, I think it makes sense to keep rotating and, and changing and checking. And uh, so far, you know, They've won the first two games. They have these opportunities on this road trip against teams that you're not going to get bit in the rear end as much if you're kind of tampering a little bit. Um, so I think that this road trip is a perfect time to try something like that. So maybe we see um, Patra play with Pasternak a little bit on this four-game road trip out west. I definitely think there's a, there's a happy medium to it. I mean, you certainly can't have a team with – I mean – what seems like half the forwards are new to this team and just run with the same lines. I mean, you got to see what you have. Um, but at the same time, you can't just, you can't see if anybody has chemistry if you're constantly changing lines every game. So I think in a perfect situation, perfect situation, you want to, you want to run with some lines to see what you have and then give them, you know, 20 games together, whatever. I mean, but there's always injuries, right? Um, the other thing you don't want to have happen is, 
have everybody so used to playing with their specific line mates that, you know, God forbid there's injury, which happens all the time, or you just need to shake things up in the playoffs or whatever. And guys don't have chemistry together. Like I, I liked the fact that last year, the Bruins forwards seem to have chemistry with everybody else in the forward group because they all played together at one point or another throughout the regular season for injuries or, or performance. And so it's good that if something happens, guys have familiarity with, with their, with their teammates, no matter what, but where Montgomery ran into trouble last year was just, you know, in the playoffs, just literally going away from what he did all he like, he, he just got to the playoffs and just, you know, changed everything from what was working. It just, I, it wasn't. And I, and, and I know post deadline, there were some personnel changes and then there was injuries and it was not as black and white as I'm making it appear. But throughout the regular season, I have no issue working with what you have, see what sticks to get you, you know, into the playoffs and get you a win on any given night. It's when you get to the postseason, you want to be a little bit more consistent if things are working. Okay, and there was a second part to Scott from Seattle's question, which also I had been thinking about, which is um, thoughts on these D pairings, McAvoy Lindholm as the top pairing. Second pairing of Carlo Lorai, and then a third pairing of Shattenkirk Forbert. Would that be something that you could run with? Um, obviously, Grizzlick is the one left out of that equation. So um, I think the main question revolves around the Carlo Lorai pairing and what we think of that because we did get to see that in preseason. Um, Scott, we'll go to you first. Yeah, and the other thing that Scott included there was. He says trade Grizzly for draft capital that can be used for a depth piece of the trade deadline if when the bees are ready for a run. Um, I, I certainly think Lorai Carlo could end up being a pairing. To me, Lorai fits either place in the top four, whether it's next to McAvoy and you keep Lindholm Carlo together or next to Carlo and you put you load up Lindholm McAvoy in the top pair. Um, those those both work for me. Like Putting him next to Carlo, the you know where that could really help is Carlo can really be the security blanket, and Laura can get involved offensively, which is his strength, and maybe take some more chances where he doesn't, you know, he knows Carlo's going to be back there covering. If it's with McAvoy, then it that requires, you know, as we see with Grizzly and McAvoy, where they both have to be aware of what the other one's doing, and you know, there's going to be times where they're both jumping into the offense. And that's great because it adds to your attack, but you have to be aware when the situation calls for you to be the one to stay back. So um, I think both are options, you know, and certainly could be options this year. So to the second part of it about, you know, potentially trading Grizzly, like I've said before, I am in absolutely no rush to trade away my depth on defense because you every season you inevitably have to tap into that depth at some point. Uh, last year was last year, that stretch where the Bruins went like two months with the exact same decor and Jacob Zaboral was just a healthy scratch every game. Like that's the outlier that almost never happens. So, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's Grizzly rotating in and out of the lineup with Forboard or Shan Kergo, like however it shakes out, uh, I do think we're going to see Lori at some point. It's just what are the circumstances that lead to it? Is it 
Is it an injury to someone, which is, you know, the most obvious one? Or is it that he's just playing so well in Providence that he forces their hand? Does someone in Boston struggle? Like any or all of those could lead to Lori coming up. And, and I do think once he's here, it's probably in the top four. Like I don't, not that he couldn't play next to say Kevin Shattenkirk, but I don't think that's the ideal role for him. So I agree with you, Scott. I'm, I'm in no rush to deplete the Bruins depth on defense. And obviously you mentioned last year was a bit of an anomaly with the health that they had, but I also think back to, to April of, of 2017 when, uh, you know, you had Tory Krug, I think, was out. Adam McQuaid went down. Colin Miller went down. I think there was – I think the Bruins were down for their top six defensemen that year in that first round against Ottawa. Um, so you always want depth. And, and, and yeah, like I'm for the 2022 – or 2023-2024 Bruins, I'm in no rush to, like you said, get rid of Grizzlick. But where, where you have to consider it is that I believe he's a UFA after this season. Is that correct? So you would potentially be at risk of losing him to free agency for nothing if you decide to hold on to him and, 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 and value that depth this year. So I guess it's, it's just a matter of if Lori comes up and he's in a top four role and your third pair is Grizzlick and Shattenkirk or Forbert and Shattenkirk or whatever – um, you know, maybe there's a, there's a decision to be made based off of asset management while they're still, you know, um, under contract. So that's the only thing aside from that, you know, I have no issue with if Matt Grizzlick or is a, or Mason Lori is your seventh defenseman on a given night, that's pretty damn good depth. So, um, ideally they're both in the lineup at the same time. Like my, my ideal combination would be a top four of, you know, McAvoy, Lindholm, Lorai, and Carlo, and then your your third D pair is is Grizzlick and, and Shattenkirk. I think that's your most skilled top six that you can put out you can put out there on any given night, even right now, though Lorai's in Providence. So anyway, I would echo Scott's sentiment. Don't want to trade him, but if 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 it comes down to losing him for nothing and and you feel like Lorai is a significant piece and whatever you have to make it a hard decision potentially. So how would you guys respond to losing him for potentially nothing in the off season? Well, actually I, I, I will react to that secondly, but first of all, I just want to say as a pair, um, Carlo Lorai is just a massive pair. So Carlo is six, five and Lorai is six, four. And whenever I stand next to either of them, I feel like just a tiny little kid. Um, and so uh, when we did get a chance to see them together in the preseason, they took up a lot of space. They have a lot of reach. They have, you know, neither of them are, they're, they're, neither of them are the fastest defensemen, but they're not that slow either. So you have a little bit of speed there and you have guys that are just massive and Carlo is obviously more of the shutdown kind of guy. He's going to be relied upon and he's a veteran now. So he knows when he may need to recover for someone like Lori, who's still learning the system or still learning when to drop and when to pinch and different things like that. So I actually really liked the look that they had in, in preseason and I could see that being a successful pairing for them. Um, and I, I personally 
would like to get a chance to see it. But something that Scott mentioned is that if you're going to bring Lori up, you're going to bring him up for a large amount of time. You're not just going to like stunt his development and keep him as your seventh defenseman. You're going to want him to continue his development. So you got to really make that decision that you're going to give him real minutes if you do bring him up. Um, so that would mean that you're either having Grizzlick or Forbert or Shattenkirk as your seventh defenseman in that case. And then Ian Mitchell um, would be out of the picture. Maybe he clears waivers and goes to Providence. Maybe he gets picked up on waivers. Um, I guess that's the question. So Brian, to your, your question about Grizzlick, letting him go for nothing is obviously not ideal, but we saw the situation last season when the Bruins were really, truly the, the top contender and they didn't want to sacrifice depth on defense for any reason. Um, I think that if they're in that position that they really think that they have a chance to make a, a decent run at that point in the year, they may not, they may do the same thing and not sacrifice it. Cause if at that point, say Grizzly, cause he was seventh defenseman and Ian Mitchell got picked up on waivers you are really shorthanded in terms of depth there, unless you're going to bank on Zaboral coming in and, and being a playoff defenseman for you. So I think it's a big risk to trade him at the deadline. Um, and it all depends on how the season goes up till that point. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. <clears throat> this is Scott's flu game. He's been battling. Oh, God. The last days. Yeah, this is brutal. Um, sorry. Sorry, listeners. But yeah, that, that's exactly the key is is how is the season going? Because if you're in it and you look like a contender and you feel, you know, like you're right in the mix, then I'm not worried about potentially losing Grizzly for nothing because I'm just worried about what gives me my best team this season. Uh, if you're more on the fringe, then maybe you entertain the idea of, you know, sell-offs. You're not going to go... Full selling, but hey, if Grizzly's kind of the seventh guy or we feel comfortable playing six guys ahead of him, then maybe you look at trading him because, you know, you're not you're not quite all in and, and you might want to recoup some of that draft capital because, hey, look, next year they're still really short on draft capital. So uh, if, if that's the case, if they're kind of like on the bubble in out, then sure you entertain that and see what's out there. Um, if you're first or second in the division come February, then you're, you're just adding and you're trying to make a run this year. And, you know, if there's a hockey trade involving Grizzly, maybe it upgrades your wing or something. Um, that makes sense. But otherwise, like, I'm not, I'm not going to trade him just to try to get something in return. If I think that keeping Grizzly helps make us a better team heading down the stretch. And actually that perfectly transitions into a question that we got from Griffin who wanted to consider a trade, propose a trade that would involve sending Grizzly or forward. So it said thoughts on a potential trade for Connor Garland. Um, let's say Grizzly or forward plus a little bit more for Garland at one to $2 million retained. Um, plus Jack Rathbone. This, this is a like a, a complex trade that's being proposed, but um, so, and then the idea to call up Lori. So um, I don't know how much you guys have looked into 
Connor Garland or what he could help with at the trade deadline compared to the benefit of having that defensive depth. Yeah. So here's just some, some cliff notes on Connor Garland. So people kind of have a better idea here. Uh, well, one, he's, he's local. He's from Situate. Um, two, he's 27 years old, signed for this year and two more at $4.95 million a year. Uh, has a really good five-on-five scoring numbers and is, is a good two-way player as a wing. Um, over the last three seasons, he is 53rd in the NHL in five-on-five points per 60 minutes. And if you want to get an idea of like what that range is, here are the names around him. Nazem Kadri, Sidney Crosby, Clayton Keller, Patrice Bergeron, Connor Garland, Chandler Stevenson, Elias Lindholm, Matt Barzell, Evgeny Malkin. Um, obviously I'm not saying like his all around game is on the level of those guys, but on a five on five, like rate scoring basis, that's the company that he's in. Um, he doesn't play much on either special teams. So he's almost, you're kind of exclusively bringing him in as a five on five player. But, you know, if we're talking about potentially the Bruins looking to upgrade at wing, say, you know, James Van Riemsdyk doesn't stick in the top six or isn't producing like a top six forward or Morgan Geeky doesn't stick. Like, it's easy to see how the Bruins could be looking for an upgrade on the wing. Um, I think Garland would, would be a good target. He he is available. The Canucks have made that very clear. Uh, they they want to free up salary. So, and he's been sort of the, the clear name on the trading block for a while. Um, Elliot Freeman, just within like the last couple of days, reported that the Columbus Blue Jackets, Nashville Predators, and Winnipeg Jets are among the teams that have shown interest. But trades are always hard to make early. Like Vancouver, I think, would want to make this trade as soon as possible. But trades are always hard to make early in the season because teams don't have much cap space and they just set their opening night roster. And most teams kind of want to see how that looks for a while before they start wheeling and dealing. I mean, I like Garland a lot. I think he's a water bug. I think he works hard. He creates havoc. Scott mentioned where he kind of lays as far as, far as his position in the league with five on five. Um, I mean, Scott mentions he's a, he's more of a five on five player. Well, so is Grizzlick at this stage. And again, like don't want to take away from the Bruins depth, but this is a, this is a hockey trade, right? So if it was Grizzly, for example, in th- this would only be as as, as the uh, the question poses, like if 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 Lori was was on the big club, right? So if he's on the team, he's top four, making an impact. That's that's where this scenario is, is you know, is painted. So in that scenario, yeah, I, look, I think it's like maybe you do if you're bringing back Connor Garland, who's a you know really solid middle six second line you know potentially first line player at times like and the and the cost is you know a couple of months of Grizzly, who let's be honest has not been a great playoff performer as it is and then he's going to be a ufa and i don't see the bruins maybe resigning Grizzly anyway if laura is in their future plans i just don't know if it's going to happen so i think it's i think it's an interesting um scenario and i would probably depending on how things are shaking out i if it's 
look, you always want to try to improve your hockey team, especially at the trade deadline if you're a playoff team. And if, if Mason Laura is in your top four and you haven't skipped a beat and the cost is, you know, Forbert or Grizzlick, but you insert Connor Garland, I mean, you absolutely, I think you have to strongly consider it. And so we have two more questions. This one I think could be a quick answer here um, because this is something we're going to get to more as the season goes on. Um, this is an email from Will. Um, if the Bruins are a bubble team mid at midseason, would you move Allmark for a 2C? Um, would he fetch more than a rental? And I think that that is something that we need a little bit of time to answer still. Um, and we did kind of just talk about whether or not they need a 2C. Um, so just quick thoughts on this so that we have time to get to the last question. Yeah, I think if you're the Bruins – First, you, you, as you said, like you want to see if you feel like you already have your solutions in-house. And I would say even if Zaka and Patra aren't, you know, as long as like they're having good seasons and you, you see an upward tra- trajectory, I think that probably puts the Bruins in a position to still kind of continue to play the waiting game and, you know, give those guys a chance. Um now, if one of them struggles or Patrick gets sent back, maybe that becomes more of a possibility. Um, it also all depends on what the market's going to be because it's easy for us to sit here and say, like, well, if Linus Elmark's having another really good year, you should be able to trade him for a second line center. It's like, okay, but that means you got to find a team out there that needs a goalie that's. If they're trading for Linus Allmark, like they're probably a contender or close to it. It's probably a playoff team. And is any playoff team parting with a second line center? So then it's like, are you getting a third team involved? Like it gets really complicated really fast because it's just not as simple as, hey, Linus Allmark's playing well. Let's go trade him for a center. Um, you know, if it was that simple, they might have done it this summer. So uh, a, a lot of moving parts on on that one for it to even potentially become a possibility. Yeah. The timing of this proposal is, is where it's tricky because Scott, you said it perfectly. Like what, what, what team is trading for a number one goalie that's willing to give up a, a top two center. Like you, you, you nailed it. It's likely a playoff team, right. Or a contender. And that's just not something that makes a ton of sense. Right. Um, and chances are, if you're a playoff team, your goaltending has been, decent enough to get you to that point um so it's 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 really it's really kind of an off-season move in my opinion i mean you mentioned maybe they can get creative with a with a third party but i don't know i just i just i feel like if you were gonna trade linus allmark and maybe they tried right but i think you try to the general rule in sales is to sell when the assets at its highest and and you know coming off of a vesna trophy performance this may have this past summer may have been the best opportunity for the Bruins to move Allmark for for the for the greatest return and if it wasn't out there to be had then then they 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 forewent it so um but I don't see I don't see a a scenario where a trade deadline move happens with Allmark I just even for the Bruins right like I mean it's is he the I don't know I, I would say I would lean no. Um, and of course we need to see, as we mentioned, like does Patra and, and Zaka fulfill what we think they could do. 
so it, it's asked me again in you know three months and three four months and we'll have maybe a more of a specific answer but even then the scenario is still tough because i don't know what what team would be would want to trade for a number one goalie and give up a an important asset in return um so okay, okay. i will get to our last one and it was a comment on youtube which also had several comments beneath it in disagreement so uh let me read it it's john left this comment on youtube for us it says can we all agree this current roster has no chance to win a stanley cup toronto will destroy this team and that was met with some comments below it that were talking about how toronto maybe isn't a better team on paper than the bruins so just thoughts on maybe how they how the bruins stack up against toronto and it that this is this team on paper, this Bruins team on paper, a team that has a chance to make it past a team like Toronto and Carolina and make it to the cup final. Yeah. Uh, I certainly do not think we can all agree on that, John, because um, the, the Bruins still have enough to be a playoff team. And as we saw last year, if you're in the playoffs, you have a chance. And I think the, I think Toronto we, we all picked them to win the division. So yes, on paper, I put them ahead of the Bruins, but their defense could really struggle. Like they clearly took a step back defensively this off season where they lost a bunch of the depth that they had added last year because they had their own cap crunch. And their two big additions were John Klingberg and Tyler Bertuzzi who do a lot of things that I like, but playing good defense is not among them. John Klingberg is an offense first defenseman who has never been particularly great defensively. Tyler Bertuzzi barely plays defense. Like you, you love a lot of the other stuff he does, but he is pretty weak in his own zone. So um, that look, this is like the formula that Toronto had for years where they had a ton of offense, but their defense and goaltending victimized them in the playoffs it very well could be that same formula again for them. So no, I would not, I would not be conceding right now that Toronto is going to destroy them or anyone else in the playoffs because they are, they're a flawed team and they might be able to fix it, you know, as the season goes on. But right now, no, like that's a team with a pretty clear weakness. Yeah. And as we learned last year with the Bruins, like even teams that you feel like have no holes on paper, like there are a lot of intangibles come April, that that play a factor expectations outside noise you know just there's a lot of reasons why you can you just can't i mean like 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 scott said if you're a playoff team there's a chance i mean the bruins had such a better roster on paper than the panthers did and i would also say so did toronto and so did carolina but you know what they had one player in matthew kachuk who was just playing all world and you know they they, they had a hot month and and it got into the cup final so I mean, I definitely think Boston's a playoff team. Um, it's it's kind of two different points he's making. He's saying, uh, can we agree that the Bruins aren't going to win the Cup? Well, okay, so that's put that off to the side, and then Toronto will kill them. It's two different things he's saying. Uh, I've never once seen Toronto beat Boston in the playoff series, and I think Boston has far better goaltending, goaltending and defense. So while the Bruins certainly have question marks, I'm not going to sit here and put Toronto on a pedestal that they have not deserved yet. I mean, it's kind of like um, – like when you play Mario Kart back in the day, you see the three little guys on the 
on the things going going to the top and and Toronto hasn't done anything. They haven't they haven't won a Grand Prix yet, Scott. So I don't know what, what this guy's talking about. But as far as the um as far as the Stanley Cup prediction, I mean, like like I said, what team can you point to right now that that you can sit there and say for sure, like, yeah, they're gonna win a Stanley Cup. Only one team can win. And and chances are the team that wins the cup has their flaws because there's no there's no perfect team out there. So I don't know. Let's just see what I don't know, John. Let's let's see what let's see what happens here, buddy. I don't want to, you know, damn the Bruins for being two and zero right now. And there's a lot of promising <laughs> things right now with them. I wouldn't gamble on hockey. I mean, I don't gamble anyway, but I would not gamble on a Stanley Cup champion to start the season. I don't care what the odds are. Um, I just think the Stanley Cup playoffs are one of the least predictable uh, postseasons in out of any of the major sports. Um, it's it's just so up in the air. There's no definitive. Oh, this team can't make it or can if if you make the playoffs, you can win the Stanley Cup. So uh, we've seen it happen before. And yeah, it definitely seems like a very strong statement that we we don't agree with. And some of the other commentators, commenters, not commentators, um, don't agree with either. Uh, so that was our last question for the mailbag. Thank you to everyone for sending that stuff in. To we got we got everything. We got emails. We got comments on Twitter. Um, we got comments on YouTube. And if we didn't see yours, we apologize. But we will be doing more mailbags, especially when there's kind of a gap between games. So we'll be able to get to whatever you guys want to ask at some point um, when we do another mailbag episode. So or you know we don't even have to do it. We can just throw one of them into a random episode too. doesn't matter um, if that's the main focus, but we do have a fashion segment, Brian. I want to get your opinion but on this because Brian is the lead before, fashion I, analyst here. Sorry, Scott. Uh, can I quickly throw a, an answer to one of Jim's other questions? Because we definitely don't have time to answer all his. Sorry, Jim. But he, he asked if we think there's any other rookies who could play in Boston. Uh, this doesn't have to be a long one, but I just made a quick list. If something happens to Swayman or Allmark and they have to miss time, Brandon Bussey's playing. Um, I think Mark McLaughlin's pretty high towards the top of the list of call-ups, you know, along with guys who aren't rookies, but Mark McLaughlin is technically still a rookie because he hasn't played enough NHL games yet. If they need a center and his development goes well this year, Georgie Merkulov could be a possibility. Um, Fabian Lysel, we know had a, you know, a disappointing camp in preseason, but Hey, if he goes down and tears it up, like a second half call up, isn't totally out of the question. And on defense, just because we've seen years where you get down to your eighth, ninth, 10th defenseman. I think Mike Callahan looked like a player who wouldn't be out of place. If you had to throw him into an NHL lineup for a couple of games, uh, here or there. So that's, that's my list of other potential rookies. All right. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. I forgot to go back to all of those questions and uh, check off maybe a few more of the five or six or seven questions that we got. We can get to them at a different time, but anyway, we've already gone kind of long and I made this beautiful fashion segment graphic. So let's do it. Uh, Brian, the Jersey that we want to talk about is the mighty ducks looking Anaheim Ducks jersey mm. that is kind of like a maroon purple and I think I yeah. know you well enough to know what your opinion on it is but go ahead yeah yeah it's the old it's the old jade and eggplant I mean look I 
I'm not gonna hold back any punches here. I think it's the biggest travesty in sports that the that the Ducks have abandoned this this look for the last don't look now, but like 16, 17 years, whatever it's been. Um, you know, the 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 Mighty Ducks, Disney sold the Mighty Ducks back in 2006, I want to say. And and yeah, the, they just rebranded the team to the orange and black with the, you know, the literally gross, disgusting, makes me want to vomit on my sneakers, uh, web, web D on their jersey. Um, and, and, well, Brian, why'd they go to orange and black? Oh, well, because they were trying to emulate Orange County, California, the, the pride of Anaheim, and it looks like shit. So um, I'm really glad that they they went back to the uh, the old colors, and now it's just a matter of I think the to answer your question, Bridget, the jerseys look great. Um, it's not the the traditional logo, which by the way, when Disney sold the Ducks in 2006, they also sold the logo. So for the longest time, I thought Disney sold the rights to that original logo. They don't. Like when you sell the team, you sell all that stuff. So I think the team, if they wanted to, which is why you see it on their orange third jerseys, they can use that logo still. So the the original ducks logo isn't being used it's kind of a hybrid wild wing logo but nonetheless i think they look sharp um the ducks can easily go from the worst jerseys i think in all of sports to you know a top five uniform in hockey if they just make that simple change and go back to their old colors and right now i think it's just a matter of time and a waiting game until that happens i think it's probably going to be in the next couple of years hopefully they do that um but i'm glad that they went back to it and uh, side note, they are wearing those jerseys against the Bruins because you bet your ass I went on their third jersey schedule on their website, and they are scheduled to wear those jerseys against the Bruins. So I'm looking forward to that one. There you go. A reason to stay up late. Um, although that, oh, yeah. I think that, that game is 830, right? So that, no, it's not even that late. No, um, but the, the first one on Thursday is at 1030. So yeah, and so it's so it's Saturday in L.A. Um, yeah, I mean. It, it, it is it's so like like I actually think there's a way that orange could work for some team because that is a pretty unique color in and of itself. Uh, you know, really, I think it's well, like Oilers use it as a third color, Flyers, obviously. Um, maybe someone else I'm not thinking of off the top of my head, but the Ducks already had such great colors, like they already had such a unique color scheme with uh, you know, the purple and teal or whatever that the what is it eggplant and eggplant and jade scott eggplant yeah and jade. jade is the official color yeah so that was already such a great color scheme like so never that's gonna to be change. brian's that's gonna be brian's wedding color scheme eggplant <laughs> and jade <laughs> get the bridesmaids in the eggplant color dresses and yep. yeah and the only and the only meal options are duck so oh no <laughs> no Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep different dip, different variations of duck did the only time i ever tried duck was uh this is a very random place and won't seem like the place to try it but uh it was at a college hockey regional in worcester it was part of the media meal and uh it, it was okay it was okay i i can't that was probably like 10 years ago and I've never felt the need to have ducks since then, but maybe, maybe go to like France and try it. I don't know. Well, I mean, what Worcester is the, the Paris of the Northeast. So Mm, that's what they say. (laughs) Well, Scott, that sounds awful. I'm sorry. I had to go through that. Um, (laughs) What's your final opinion on the, on the jerseys? I love them. Like, look, I, I wish it was the, 
the original logo with the you know sticks crossed and and everything it's sort of like the updated alternate logo of the duck build mask which which is the best part of the logo anyways so still still a very high grade and if they ever just went back to this full time with the original logo it's it's an a plus um but i still i give these alternates an, a solid a like nine and a half out of ten I knew, I knew as soon as I saw them, Brian was going to have positive things to say uh, about that jersey. So um, I think that's it. I, I, I concur. I like, I, I like them. They, they got a lot going on um, in a good way. So uh, I think that's it, guys. Um, we are going to drop another episode. So I don't know if we mentioned this before. We're going to try to like, be more consistent with when we drop our episodes. So Mondays and Wednesdays are going to be good times for us to drop them. And then we all have different kind of crazy weekend schedules. So maybe that one's more up in the air because I work Fridays and Saturdays broadcasting and Sundays, Scott helps with Patriots coverage. Um, And so that might be more up in the air, but Mondays and Wednesdays, we're going to try to, be as consistent as possible with that so um i think yeah we'll we'll get to our next podcast after thursday's game so i don't think we're gonna want to record directly after because it's gonna be like 1 a.m so um we'll try to try to get that up at some point friday or saturday depending on when we record yeah i think i think in general, Monday, Wednesday, and and Fridays, look for them. Um, certainly Monday, Wednesday, and we'll try to do consistently on Fridays, whether we record on Thursdays or not. But that's probably the general schedule to look forward to. And as Bridget said, like the third one throughout the week might you know, be subject to change, but it'll always be three a week. And certainly Mondays and Wednesdays they'll be dropping, and Fridays unless things change on a given week. So, all right, anything else from the two of you? Nope. All right, Bridget, great job with the with the little headers on the bottom. They look very nice. I and, yes, uh, I, I got creative yesterday. Very good. Very good. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. We will talk to you very soon.